You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. If you've got your Bibles, Exodus chapter 22, uh, we're going to finish up chapter 22 and then cover all of chapter 23 today. So we've got uh, a little bit of reading here to do at the beginning, and then we're going to work through the text uh, very quickly today and hopefully brings to light some things that you can take away from uh, these instructions about the Old Testament law. We'll start reading in verse 28. It says, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were the sojourners in the land of Egypt. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God." You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him." But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, to the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, And he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. 
I will not drive them out from you before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you, until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand. You shall drive them out before you. You shall, name, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Our summary sentence for today, as Christians, we demonstrate our desire to be counted amongst those who are blessed by God by being known for obedience, truth, and compassion as we faithfully seek to separate ourselves from that which God is working against. As Christians, we demonstrate our desire to be counted amongst those who are blessed by God by being known for obedience, truth, and compassion as we faithfully seek to separate ourselves from that which, is, which God is working against. For our kids, if we want to be blessed by God, we need to show we are on his team. The last several weeks we've looked at the... Oh yeah, let me give you the... The last several weeks, we've looked at um, the way that the law has direct application for our life. So we studied the Ten Commandments, and then we've been seeing directly how some of those commands play out in everyday life situations. Now, we've talked about how they are everyday life situations for Israel. So we have to kind of dig in deep to kind of see how would this necessarily apply to me. And so we've tried to do that over the last several weeks. We've looked at you know, ways that we handle our property and disputes and how we try to make things right with others. We talked specifically last week about how we are to take and teach responsibility for our passions, particularly when we see a rise in premarital type relationships, cohabitation, uh, not just being on a rise in our culture, but in the church that we need uh, commitments for purity within our church. And we need to teach our kids what that looks like as well. Uh, Last week, we looked at uh, the, the need to, to do away with sorcery, right? And we said that maybe that's not a particular struggle for you, but we talked about what's the, the meaning, the underlying meaning behind that. It's the idea that we don't need to tap into powers outside of our God to change our circumstances or situations, that we pray to our God if he chooses to leave specific challenges in our life We can trust that he's actively working for our good with those challenges. We don't need to go to a sorcerer. We don't need to go to a wizard to try to fix our life. We have the greatest power in the universe already. We talked about feeling and fixing the needs of others, the idea that we're to be sympathetic towards the widow, the orphan, the sojourner. Why? He says, Israel, you understand what it was like to be alienated. You understand what it was like to be a foreigner in Egypt and to be mistreated. He says, feel how other people feel based on your experiences and show compassion to them. We talked about how spiritually we have been all of those things. We've been the the aliens separated from God's people, and we've been welcomed in by God's grace. We've talked about how we were uh, husbandless, and, and, and Christ became our husband. We're the bride of Christ. We talked about how we're orphans, and yet we've been adopted into God's family. So we're to have that mindset of, of compassion towards other people. Today, we, we see more direct application of God's law, and we're going to jump right into uh, practical application for us for what this means uh, as we get ready to leave today, and uh, how do we apply some of it? Number one, we revere rather than revile God's authority in our life. We revere rather than revile 
God's authority in our life. Look what verse 28 says in chapter 22. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. There's this idea of authority that comes up again. Now remember, we talked about the, the command to honor our father and our mother as an initial step towards honoring authority in our life. Why is it so important that we teach our kids to honor and to, to respect and to obey their parents? Why is it so important for kids to embrace that? Because it's the stair step to all the other authorities that are going to come in their life, right? Typically, if a child is uh, extremely disrespectful or disobedient to a teacher in school, it, it's reflective of what's happening at home, right? Like we don't have a lot of kids that come into my office at, at Trinity who are in trouble where when I meet with the parent, they say, this is crazy. We have no problems with him at home, right? Like this is so uncharacteristic. This, this, this daughter doesn't do anything like that at home. Typically it's, yeah, we're having the same struggles at home, right? Because the, the honoring of the father and the mother, if the child embraces that authority, it typically bleeds into how they treat other authorities. So it's super important for us as parents to instill that in our children. He says, don't revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. We submit to the authority of God and the authorities he establishes over our lives. This isn't just an Old Testament command. We have a responsibility to watch what we say about God and the leaders he places over us, right? First Timothy 2 verses 1 through 4 talks about our need to pray for our leaders. This is super relevant as we get ready to come into election season once again. So tempting and so easy to uh, fall into the trap of what everyone else in our culture does, and that is to bash and talk negatively about leaders, right? To, uh, to not uh, very often pray for them, but to speak against them. And he says, don't do that. He says, these authorities, he reminds us, these authorities are a reflection of God's sovereignty. Why? Because God raises every leader up. Leaders that are in place have been put there by God, even the evil ones, right? We don't curse our rulers, it points back to the honor that we give to parents as the first authorities in our lives. To speak and to reject those who God places over us is to attack both him and his sovereignty. Romans chapter 13 points us in this direction, this mindset. Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. We're to show respect and honor to leaders, not because they're right, but because they're given to us by God. We give honor to God that he deserves by respecting the authorities that are placed over us. Look what Proverbs chapter 24 says. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 21. My son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join with those who do otherwise, for disaster will arise suddenly from them. And who knows the ruin that will come from them both? He says, fear the Lord, fear the king, and don't join yourself with others who don't do those things. Show reverence to those who have been placed over you. First Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Remember, one of our, our things that we want to do as we work through the law here in Exodus is show the parallels in the New Testament. First Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I think Acts chapter 23 helps shed some light on even an extreme situation where it would be very tempting 
to speak against rulers that have been placed over us. Paul finds himself in a situation as he's being attacked for his faithfulness to share Christ. He ends up coming up against the high priest and doesn't realize it. And he speaks against him. So in the midst of the debates and the struggles about Christ crucified and resurrected, Paul is is rebuked for, hey, you're speaking against the high priest. And what you don't have is Paul say, who cares? Like if the high priest is is speaking falsehood, then I'm going to speak against him. You see an immediate acknowledgement of error. Look what it says in Acts chapter 23, verse 3. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. This is Paul reaching back into the Old Testament and saying, I'm in error here. The ways that I'm speaking to this authority that's been placed over me is, is, is inappropriate. Right? It's, it's, a, it's a reminder to us that we have a responsibility to yield to those who have been placed over us. We don't obey. It's not that Paul now says, hey, you're right, like Jesus didn't die and, and raise again. I, I've been wrong and in error. You're my leader. I need to submit to you. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't buckle to the pressure of, I need to, to say what you're saying is right, even though it's wrong. But he is saying the way I'm approaching this needs to change because of the position you're in. Right? It's a reminder to us that, yeah, we've got leaders. We'll always have leaders that we disagree with. We'll always have leaders who are doing things contrary to God's word. It doesn't give us a right to revile them or to speak negatively of them in a way that's demeaning. This is counsel given from God through Moses to the Israelites. It's the same counsel given to us in the New Testament. Number two, we serve God by uh, being willing to sacrifice the best of ourselves to him. We serve God by being willing to sacrifice the best of ourselves to him. He gives instructions to Israel that they are to give in response to the goodness that has been shown to them. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. We talked about that already earlier in Exodus, that the firstborns weren't going to be killed even though God had the right to claim them, they were going to be consecrated to the Lord. You shall do the same with your oxen, with your sheep. Seven days it's with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. We serve God by being willing to sacrifice the best of ourselves to him. Everything we own belongs to God, and we need to express gratitude by giving back to him. We owe God our family and our flocks. The first fruits belong to him. From our children to our animals to our field to the... To the uh, uh, the, the profits that we make through our jobs were to give back to the Lord to show our appreciation for all that he's done to us. Now, you get a weird roadkill passage kind of thrown in here in verse 31. You shall be consecrated to me, therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by the beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. I'll be honest, I don't know exactly what all is going on here. It just seems kind of randomly inserted. I do think the theme that you see running through this passage all the way to the end of chapter 23 is that God's people are to be set apart and different, and it's not to try to mix two things that are unalike, right? We'll see this with the the weird boiling of the young goat passage too. Um, 
what 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 we can all typically even agree on today is that if you if you were to go over to somebody's house, right, and they served you a meal and you said, "Oh man, this is great. This meat is awesome. Where did you get this?" If that person were to say, "Craziest thing, I was driving home tonight, wasn't sure what I was going to cook you and and I found this dead animal on the side of the road and I cooked it up for you." you we'd all be kind of like, "Uh, like it's unhealthy, like it's not good. Like that, that's not what we should probably do. So there's probably an element of that here, right? Like, hey, as you give, right? Like, don't think that you got to go eat roadkill because you've given to the Lord, right? Like it's unhealthy. It's unclean. There could be some ritualistic stuff that's happening here that they're to stay away from because we continue to see that theme too. And that probably is a little bit more apparent with the boiling of the goat passage, what we'll get to. Um, either way, I think we can we can all say that while we may not be tempted to this, this is a good reminder not to probably do this, right? As we get into chapter 23, it becomes a little bit more clear about how we're to live some of this stuff out. Number two, we're to preserve rather than pervert truth and justice. We're to preserve rather than pervert truth and justice. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. There's a little bit of a break there with how we're to treat our enemy and his animals. Verse 6, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, this passage is very heavily... Uh, geared towards the judicial system, right? You're talking about witnesses, you're talking about reports, you're talking about judges and bribes and decisions that are being made. So high level, that's absolutely the application that if we were to find ourselves in a courtroom setting, we have a responsibility to promote truth and justice. But I don't think it's limited to the courtroom only. There's certainly a lot of other times where we find ourselves outside the courtroom in similar situations where we are being asked about our involvement, right? And there's a responsibility to promote truth and justice versus perverting it, right? Some examples would be, number one, don't share everything you hear. Don't share everything you hear. He says, don't spread a false report. There's certainly the piece where we don't knowingly and willfully share a false report, but I think it's also implied that we shouldn't unwillingly and unknowingly share a false report either, right? Meaning that we don't deliberately lie as a conspiracy, particularly to get a guilty person to be found innocent or or an innocent person to be found guilty, but we also shouldn't just spread things that are told to us without knowing or verifying the truth of it. Why? Why? Because oftentimes people will hear it from us as though it is truth. And he says, you need to be careful with that. You need to be careful with that because you are, you are impacting people's perspectives about others when you share things that you hear. Don't spread false reports. Don't bear false witness, right? This comes from the Ten Commandments. Don't twist or exaggerate the truth to put yourself in a better light. For our students in here, I oftentimes have conversations with kids when I'm addressing them in my 
uh, my office. And, and so I would, I would talk to all of our kids here who, who find themselves in situations, particularly when they're being asked questions from those who are in authority, that you promote truth, even if it doesn't always make you look the best. Right? I tell our students all the time, I just need you to be honest with me. It's so important. It's so valuable. And it's something that, that an authority figure can't make happen. I can't make somebody be honest with me. Right? Even like lie detectors aren't foolproof. Right? Like truth, being known as someone who tells the truth, man, you, you, you can't put a price tag on that. Right? And so I tell our kids all the time, look, even if it makes you look terrible, be honest with me because we can work to a resolution far faster and it's far more easy to be sympathetic and compassionate to you in your truth than if you've been lying and deceiving and trying to throw somebody else under the bus. Right? Be truthful. Be honest. Be known for those things. Don't spread false reports. Don't just repeat the parts that you want others to hear about a situation too. Like, I, I'm guilty of this, right? Like, you'll, you'll hear a story, you'll hear an account, and to, to spice it up a little bit, right? Maybe to make it sound a little bit more scandalous to somebody else. We may leave out details. We're still portraying truth, right? But we're, we're formulating the context for somebody who's hearing it, and, and, and we make it sound maybe a little bit worse, a little bit more scandalous than it really needed to be. He says, be mindful of what you're, what you're saying to others, particularly about other people. Don't spread false reports. Don't, don't be one who's known for deception or lies. Don't gossip and share what might not be true. Right? That's, that's the idea of don't, don't just share what you hear. What if it's not true and, and you present it to somebody as though it is? Don't gossip. That's what gossip is. It's sharing things that, that might be true, but they might not be true. But it's just fun to kind of talk about it with people who are uninvolved typically. Don't slander. That's when we intentionally share things that aren't true. Why? Because false reports are destructive. They shape what other people think. They're not always fixable. Rumors destroy reputations and they poison community. Once things have been shared, sometimes it's hard to take it back. Once that impression has been made on somebody else, right, about this person, you've shared a false report, you've shared something that, hey, you thought it was true, but it actually wasn't true. Sometimes it's hard to erase that from somebody's mind once they've heard it. There's things that have been shared with me. I don't know if they're true or not true, but it impacts the way I see people. It impacts the way I see people because of things that have been told to me. Don't just not share it, but don't listen to it either, right? Avoid the temptation to share false reports. If it's none of your business and somebody's trying to tell you, just say, hey, like, I don't, I don't, we, don't, we don't have to talk about that. Like, let's, just, let's just let the people who are in charge of that or who know about that handle that. Be the type of person who gets the story and the facts straight from those involved. Don't believe everything you hear, particularly from those with agendas, right? Like we, sometimes we fall so quickly into the trap of giving an ear to somebody who's angry. I'm going to tell you, when somebody's angry and fired up about something, they don't always share the truth about a situation, right? They just want the sympathy from you, and so they're going to skew it any way that they can. And we're guilty of that too oftentimes. When we get fired up about a situation at work or a situation with our neighbor or something here or there, man, we will share it, and we will share it in such a way where the only verdict that could be reached is that we're completely innocent and that person is completely guilty. He says, don't share a false report. Don't skew the details, right? Be known as a person of truth, a person of justice. He goes on to say, don't join with the wicked to accomplish evil. Don't join in on what you know isn't good and see it through. 
right? Don't partner with others who are involved in something that, that's not good. Even if you're a silent contributor, a silent participant, he says, don't join with the wicked to accomplish evil. Don't side with the majority in order to be liked. He says, don't, don't just join in with the crowd. He says in verse 2, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, right? Like, don't join with the evil to do evil, and don't be sympathetic to the majority in such a way where you pervert justice, right? Like, don't just give in to the crowd because you know it'll make the majority of the people happy. You can't follow the crowd if it ends up perverting justice. Say what's true, even if it's unpopular. Number four, don't show partiality to the rich or to the poor. Sometimes we, uh, we could mistakenly hear some of the messages that circulate in our culture, and when we try to look at it in Scripture, uh, how, should we, how should we handle the poor? How should we handle the minority? How should we handle those who are uh, kind of the outcasts of society? How should we interact with them? Scripture doesn't tell us to overlook justice just because somebody's in a bad spot, right? He says, don't just be sympathetic to the poor because he's poor. He says, what you want to do is make sure that the poor gets a fair trial, gets a fair hearing, because oftentimes in his poverty, he won't, right? The rich can buy themselves out of situations, or they can, they can buy themselves into situations. He's like, the poor don't have that. He says, you show sympathy to the poor man, not because he's poor, right? You don't like overlook the justice and say, hey, we know you did this, but you're poor, so we're going to let you off, right? Like, wait, we say, hey, let's make sure that there's a voice here. Let's make sure that that person has a fair situation, a fair trial. That's what God's after, All right? He says, uh, verse three, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Verse six, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. You don't show partiality to the rich or to the poor, the rich aren't always wrong, and the poor aren't always right. The poor and less fortunate are still sinful. They don't get a pass because they're poor. What we do know from Scripture is that God sides with the poor against injustices done to them in their poverty. Don't show partiality. Number five, don't allow yourself to be bought. He talks about the briberies that, that, that maybe become a temptation to us, particularly those of us that are in leadership, those of us who have power and influence and control at our jobs, it would be easy to be bought potentially, to have people of influence skew us and sway us with financial gain. He says, don't be an individual who can be bought. It's inconsistent with the character of God. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who's not partial and he takes no bribe. Why are we told to live this way? Because God lives this way. God exists this way, and we too should be these types of people. Number three, help rather than hurt your enemies. This is a challenging passage because our, our human sinful nature wants to do the opposite of what we're told here, right? Verse four of chapter 23, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Now, I don't know if you've had a situation like this, uh, but you could probably think of a parallel if you spent some time on it. But he's basically saying, if you're walking down the road and you see your enemy's ox or his donkey has gotten out of the stable, the temptation is to do what? Just be like, my dude should have taken better care of his animals, right? Like, what's he thinking leaving the gate open? Or what's he thinking not checking his fence structure, right? And so the temptation would be to just keep walking. Say, let him figure that out. He says, 
even if it's your enemy, you take that animal and you, you retrieve it and you take it back to him. He goes on to say, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. This is where you see your enemy in a struggle with his animal. He's in a, he's in a situation where he needs help, right? This is the equivalent of seeing your enemy from your office broken down on the side of the road as you're leaving the office and you've got somewhere to be and you're like, that guy, right? Reaping what he sows right there, right? That's what you get for treating me the way that you did. God says, now you stop, you help him. You help him fix it. You don't hurt him, you don't harm him, you help him. As I was studying this, I couldn't help but think of, uh, and many of you have probably seen this movie, in Karate Kid 2, Right, karate Kid 2, at the end of the movie, this, this whole controversy between these two karate masters comes to a head. They've been at odds since they were teenagers about a girl. Right At the very end, like they're supposed to fight to the death type of a situation, and a storm springs up. Right, And you find the evil karate master uh, underneath a portion of the building, and he, and he expects the other karate master to just kill him. And Mr. Miyagi doesn't do that, right? He helps him. He spares his life. And then he tries to pass that on to his apprentice. And he's like, hey, go help Daniel. Like, there's a storm and he needs help. And the, and the other guy's like, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that, right? And, and he says, well, then you're dead to me, right? And then the movie kind of plays out and they have this fight, right? But the idea that we see at the end of that movie is two people who have been enemies, when they find themselves in a situation where the other needs help, all the controversies just set aside, hey, you're a human being who needs help. I'm going to extend that compassion and help. I'm going to show that I'm the good guy of the movie because of how I extend my compassion, right? That's what we're called to do as believers. Even when we have our enemies who have been against us fall into a, into a situation where they need help, we're not to ignore it. We're not to walk past it, right? We're to extend the compassion to them. It's the picture we see in the prodigal son, right? Not the prodigal son, the, um, the good Samaritan, Right, the Good Samaritan. Here's a guy who, who, is, who is kind of the, the, the worst of the worst for the Israelite uh, culture, who's the only one who helps the guy on the side of the road. All the religious people walk right by and say, I've got other things I've got to get to. It's the Samaritan who says, I'm going to help. I'm going to extend grace to the one who has rejected me in society. We don't take pleasure in our enemy's downfall, and we don't fail to help our enemy when we see a need. It says, distinguishing mark of a believer, that we do good to those who hate us. Let that set in for a second. We talk about sometimes, how do you know if somebody's a Christian? What are some of the, the fruits or examples you would see in life? And oftentimes we go so quickly to the easy things to do, right? Like a Christian goes to church, a Christian's been baptized, a Christian reads his Bible, a Christian prays. Like if I were to ask middle schoolers, like that's what they would say, right? Like, hey, tell me what a Christian does. Well, these are the things that they do, Yet the Bible would say, here's what a Christian does. A Christian loves the people that hate him the most. That's hard. That's hard to do, to love the people that hate you. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Lest the Lord see it and be displeased, and turn away his anger from him. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. 
Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away from your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish what others would do to you, do so to them. It's a distinguishing mark of a believer that they do good to those who hate them. Lastly, number four, work rather than worship your job. And we're called to work our jobs and to work them well. But what God wants the Israelites to know up front as they get ready to go into the promised land is that they're to work the land, they're to work their job, they're not to worship it, right? He reminds them of the Sabbath obligations that he's giving to them. They're to rest. The Sabbaths were meant for rest and recalibration. It was a time to pause and to remind yourself, I worship the one who made this rather than worshiping what has been made. The instructions that are given here is that the rest is to extend to the animals, to the slaves, to the foreigners. It's to be different than the experience they had in Egypt. They're not to appeal to other gods or sources for help. They're to listen carefully to his instructions and to trust his provision. That day off, that time of rest, was meant for a, a time for you to deal with the faulty thinking that sometimes sets in right? We're all guilty of this, right? Like when we leave here and we jump into tomorrow, oftentimes we get into faulty thinking immediately. It's easy to think right when we come here and we open God's word and we're talking about it together and it's like, oh yeah, like I definitely need to love my enemy. It's harder on Monday morning when you meet your enemy in the office and he's doing those things again, right? And you get into this faulty thinking of like doing the exact opposite of what we're called to do. The Sabbath is meant to like be a time for recalibration, for rest, to remind ourselves who we work for and who we worship. There's the six-day uh, deal that's given to them and then the six-year deal. And I don't, there's, there's debates as to whether or not they actually were able to take a full year off of working or if they were meant to work parts of their land and leave parts of their land unattended to every six, or on the seventh year so that that land could heal um, man, I love the idea of like having a whole year off of work, like every seven years, like, man, we'd be so healthy, right? Like, cause a lot of times you get to like burnout mode in six or seven years to think like, Hey, one more year. And then it's like smooth sailing for a 365 day vacation. Like that would be incredible, right? I don't, I don't know if that's exactly how it played out for them. Um, and we know that they weren't really following through with how they should have been doing. That's part of the reason for the exile, right? Like God exiles them out of the land so that the land does have rest because they had failed to do it. But um, we know in the New Testament, this functions a little bit differently. We've talked about this. We're not all one nation, so we don't follow some of these things because we can't, because we live all around the world. But certainly the idea of taking time during our week to rest, and we do have the privilege of being able to do that on the weekends for most of us to be able to take Sundays as a time to recalibrate, we should certainly do that. They're also commanded to keep these festivals and feasts, right? And they were meant for remembrance. He calls them back to the thing that we've already talked about previously in Exodus, the unleavened bread feast that commemorates their time of being rescued from Egypt. There is also the, um, the feast of the harvest where those first fruits that start to come in from their labor are to be given to the Lord. And then the feast of ingathering could probably be closely associated to our Thanksgiving as it would take place towards the end of the year once all of their crops have been gathered as a means of just giving praise and, and worship to God for his faithful provision to them. He calls them to these three feasts particularly so they'll remember, right? So they'll remember. Now we've got 
feasts and festivals that we partake of that help us remember too. They're not necessarily sanctioned by Scripture, right? Um, we've got Christmas, we've got Thanksgiving, we've got Easter. These are things that we celebrate. The Lord's Supper is really the one that's given to us as believers, and we certainly understand that's a, that's a piece for remembrance. To remember all that Christ has done and to remember all that he still promised to do. Right, We need that time. We need that time to remember, and the Lord saw fit to institute that to Israel so they would not forget. The feast reflected on God's liberation, his provision, and his salvation for them. All right, before we get into this last part, we do have the weird uh, piece about you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. All right, uh, what's going on there? This was, a, this was most likely a pagan practice uh, I think there's probably two things that are happening here. One, uh, he wants his people to not confuse what gives life and what gives death and the mixing of it. Because as he, as he gives that admonition, he's about to go into this final appeal for them to be different than what they're about to walk into. Or you're about to go into the promised land, be different. Don't mix two things that don't go together. So you've got the, the young goat who would normally be nourished and provided by the mother's milk, now being cooked in it. And he's like, that, that would be confusing. And he uses that as a picture of, it would be confusing for you to walk into the promised land, live like the Canaanites, and expect me to give you life, right? When you're partaking in something that is death, right? So I think that's intentionally placed here to give that picture. There's also a lot of commentators who believe that this was a part of a bigger ritualistic practice for fertility and, and sorcery, which we've already talked about, that you would do this, and then you would take some of the byproduct of it and use it in some ceremonies to appeal to the gods to do certain things. So it may be that he's just cutting that off before they ever get to it, okay? All right, let's get into this last part, and we'll be done. And it's our application for today. To follow rather than fear or fellowship with unbelieving influences. He says, behold, I'm sending an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I've prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. What's happening here? Well, there's two things that I want us to see that directly apply to our understanding of our life going forward. Number one, God goes before us, so we should absolutely follow him towards what he has planned for us. Right? The Israelites have been promised a promised land that he's going to bring them in there. He's going to give them everything. He's going to weed out all the other people, and, and he's going to bless them in that. Right? We, have, we have hope of a, of a much better promise. Right, that the Lord is is taking us to an eternity with Him. Uh, you know, Hebrews even alludes to the fact that even those who were bought into the idea of a promised land, they recognized there was something greater than even what God could give in this earthly day and age. Now, that there was a far greater promise to come. Right, we have that assurance as believers, and we want to follow Him in everything that He calls us to, because He goes before us. He promises an angel here that's going to guard and protect Israel. There's a lot of debate about who this angel is. I'm just going to jump straight to the end and say that I believe it is the pre-incarnate Jesus. It's Jesus before we understand him in human form in the New Testament. Why? Because we're told that we're to pay careful attention to him and to obey his voice and to not rebel against him. Things typically reserved for God alone, right? 
Also, the idea of him having the ability to pardon or not pardon transgression, that belongs only to God. God's name is in him, right? There's a, 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 an association here. There's a, a distinction made, right? A distinction about this, this, uh, this angel, but he's also viewed as equal with God, and that certainly fits the context of how we describe the Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Spirit, distinct persons, and yet co-equal together as one God. It's Jesus who goes before the people of Israel, and he is going to protect them. He's going to deliver the promised land to them. We've already seen this angel back in Exodus 14 when he's there during the Red Sea time. We say the, the text says that the angel of the Lord moved into a position to protect the children of Israel. We see him again in Joshua chapter 5. Joshua's getting ready to lead them into the promised land, and the angel's there, and he confronts Joshua, and they have a conversation, and, and, and Joshua worships him. Every other time in Scripture when an angel's worshiped, the angel says, stop doing that. I'm not worthy of worship. This angel readily accepts it because it's Jesus. I believe it's fully Jesus here who's leading the Israelites into the promised land and to protect them. The pattern we see here in this passage is to trust his victory, to obey his commands, to receive his blessings, to pay attention to what he commands and to follow through. We're told that he's going to work to bring about his purposes. He's going to send protective measures to guarantee it, right? There's a whole description here about hornets being sent to weed out these people. Could be literal hornets, could be a a metaphor from some other power that he's going to use. The important thing to see is, is that God paves the way for everything that he's planned for us, and we can trust him with that. He's going to do it in his timing too, right? <clears throat> this is something that I'm so thankful we can trust the Lord in, his timing. He says in verse 29, I'm not going to drive them out before you too fast, right? I'm not going to do it all in one year. You couldn't handle it. You wouldn't be able to take care of the land. <clears throat> he says, I'm going to do it little by little. I'm going to drive them out before you. I'm going to give it to you as you're able to handle the increase. His goodness and his wisdom shows forth here. Now, he gives them a list of blessings that we can't count on. He says, if you obey, here's some things I'm going to do, right? He says, I'm going to, um, I'm going to bless your bread and your water. I'm going to take sickness away from you. You're not going to miscarry. You're not going to be barren. I'm going to fulfill the number of your days. He gives them some promises that I think are directly tied to them, a particular people at a particular time for a particular purpose, right? He says, I got to guarantee your survival, because Jesus is coming through you, right? So you're not gonna, you're not gonna miscarry. You're not gonna be barren. You're not gonna die early because <clears throat> I need you to exist because I've already promised that Jesus is coming. So he doesn't give us those same promises today, right? We don't read this and say, oh, wow, if I'm obedient, then I get all these things too. These were given to Israel, but the assurance is given to us that God will take care of us as we choose to follow him. Blessings for obedience that come to us as well. And we can read about them in Revelation 21. Number two, God works against that, uh, anything that would hinder what he has for us, so we must do the same. What's the, what's the uh, final application that's given to us in this passage? Don't covenant with those who would be bad influences on us. Right? He says, we're getting rid of these bad people. Don't become buddies with them. That's, that's a good reminder to us. It's a good reminder to our students. Like, Be careful who you're forging friendships with. So easy to forge friendships with the wrong people. Some of you are gone off to college or getting ready to go off to college, and now you have more freedom in picking and choosing who you hang out with. Let me tell you, forge friendships with people who follow God. Don't covenant with the people who don't. Be careful. Be guarded 
about who you give your, your, your attention and your resources and your time to. They will influence you. Be diligent to detect and to destroy the idols that you have tendencies to embrace, right? He says, clean it out. Get rid of the idols. Get rid of the ways that they worship. Obediently destroy them to keep yourself devoted to the one true God. It's our application for today. Trust him. Go forward with him. Trust his timing. Trust his purposes, right? Keep yourself hitched to him. Keep yourself unhitched from things that would steer you away from him. Right? He says, we're going into the promised land. Jesus is going with you, and you steer clear of those bad influences because they will steal you away from me if you're not careful. It's good reminders for us today, too. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for the reminders that are given to us here. Lord, I pray that we would be people who are known for obedience, who are known for truth, and who are known for compassion. Lord, as we get ready to leave today, as we get ready to go in all kinds of different directions, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't uh, fall into faulty thinking as soon as we step out of these doors. Lord, we all have people that we would classify as enemies. Help us to find ways to be compassionate towards them this week. All of us have opportunities to hear and share information that may or may not be true. Help us to be people who are known for valuing truth. That if we speak it, we know it to be true. And if we don't know, we find out from the direct sources who can tell us before we share it with others. Lord, help us to have a high value on truth and justice like you do. Lord, help us to seek to be obedient to you and to uh, put up protections about being with people who don't want to be obedient to you. Lord, help us to realize that um, they're not going to push us towards holiness. And Lord, if we want to follow you wholeheartedly, we need people who will. So God, I pray for our students specifically that you would push them in a direction of being with people who will push them towards you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.